Dean Bible Ministries presents the Bible teaching ministry of Dr. Robert Dean, pastor of West Houston Bible Church. These and other Bible lessons are available from www.deanbible.org. Now let's listen to our lesson from God's Word, the Bible. How shall a young man cleanse his way? By taking heed thereto according to thy word. Thy word have I hid in my heart that I might not sin against thee. Thy word is a lamp unto my feet and a lamp unto my feet and a light unto my path. Jesus prayed to the Father, Sanctify them in truth. Thy word is truth. For the grass withers and the flower fades, but the word of our God shall stand forever. Before we get started this evening, let's go ahead and have a few moments of silent prayer. Make sure we're ready to study the word, ready to focus God the Holy Spirit to teach us what we have to learn this evening. And uh, after a few moments of silent prayer, then I will open in prayer. Let's pray. Father, we're thankful we have this opportunity to come together tonight to study your word, to think through the responsibilities that we have as believers in a body of, in the body of Christ, as believers toward one another our responsibilities as members of a local church, that we may have a proper and correct understanding of the role of the local church and the role that we have and the significance of our role within the local church. We pray that you'd help us to understand these passages we study this evening. We pray this in Christ's name. Amen. Uh, One announcement um, before we... get into the scripture this evening, or not just an announcement, but something to pray about as well. I had a little time this morning to uh, visit with uh, Bill Stebbins. Uh, Some of you know Bill. Bill has been a consistent um, uh, participant in this ministry for a number of years, and he is a major in the Army, and he's been over in the area around Mosul in the Nineveh province in Iraq, and he is back for about two and a half weeks and he'll be leaving, I think, around the 15th or 16th to go back to uh, back to Iraq. And then at the end of November, he will be coming back uh, for the end of his uh, tour. He's been over there since uh, uh, early, early, uh, or, yeah, mid-spring or early, late winter last year. And he um, he said that this last week, they, of course, most of you know this if you've been watching the news, that the uh, agreement with the Iraqis meant that all the uh, U.S. troops come out of the city, so that means they're on their different bases, different posts outside of the cities. They're not patrolling in the cities, things of that nature. As And according to a, the legal agreement, see, for us to be in a country, when uh, the U.S. goes into a country such as Germany or Korea or Iraq, there is also a legal contract that is signed between the the military and the the local national government that stipulates everything that is going on, what what the responsibilities are of the U.S. troops, what they can do, what they can't do, how various uh, any any uh, legal infractions will be taken care of, all anything you can think of. If if uh, an American soldier is going to marry a local Iraqi, how what laws are going to govern that? It's it's quite extensive and. This uh, last contract went into effect January the 9th. So according to all of these stipulations, he was saying it's uh, very difficult or it's going to be 
there are going to be a lot more restrictions on their patrols and what they can do if they come under fire and where they can go and all of these kinds of things. So that's just something you can uh, continue to keep uh, in your prayers as we pray for the servicemen that are in Iraq. And, of course, things seem to be heating up in Afghanistan, so we need to be uh, uh, specifically in prayer for those uh, those who are in Afghanistan. Okay, let's open our Bibles to Romans chapter 14. Romans chapter 14. My computer is making odd noises. I didn't get my PowerPoint started up yet, so while that's starting up, uh, Romans chapter 14, we've been studying the principle of the ministry of one believer to other believers under the terminology of one another, coming out of Hebrews chapter 10, verse 24, where it states that we are to consider one another in order to stir up, to stimulate, to provoke, to excite uh, various different uh, synonyms can be uh, brought in there to bring out the idea that this is the idea of uh, where one believer is engaged with another believer uh, for the purpose of getting us to think about how we can apply scriptures in our everyday life and in the uh, especially within the local church and toward other believers. So, We've gone from looking at Hebrews 10, 24, and 25 to looking at a topical study where we're, we're focusing on how we are to be engaged with one another. And that's the doctrine of one another. We've gone through various points looking at the uh, original uh, Greek word that focuses on this aspect to one person towards others in a group. Uh, the main command that I think everything comes under is the command to love one another, which is used 15 times in the New Testaments, mentioned by all of the different authors of the epistles, John, Paul, and Peter. And I think that all of these different commands uh, <clears throat> exemplify different aspects or facets of that idea of loving one another that we have in John 34 and 35, that the new commandment that we are to love one another as Christ has loved us. We, so that's the main command. So one aspect of that command is that we are to encourage one another. This is stated in passage, passages such as Romans 1.12. We also looked at, at uh, passages in 1 Thessalonians chapter 4 and 1 Thessalonians chapter 5 that we're to encourage one another. And that is not just the idea of saying things that that are motivational. It's not just saying things that are uplifting. It is the content. It is encouraging people with specific teaching uh, from the Scripture. We are to do this because we are members of one another. Romans 12.5, Ephesians 4.25 emphasizes the fact that there is an interdependency among members of a local body of, uh, of believers. We are an extended family. It's not just different individual people coming together uh, just to get teaching and then to go about their uh, lives apart from the local church, but there is to be an, in, there's an interdependency within those members. They're, they get to know one another. They uh, find out how they can pray for one another. They pr- find out how to encourage one another, and they get to know one another. 
Uh, we're to give preference to one another in honor. This especially is true when you have problems, uh, personal problems with other believers. So we are to be gracious towards one another and to honor one another. Uh, the sixth point, we're to be of the same mind to one another, which means we're to think the same way, and that has its ultimate basis in in the Word of God, passages like Romans 12:16, Romans 15:5, and then I came through uh, Romans chapter 7, and I mean the seventh point, getting into Romans chapter 14. I uh, touched briefly on the eighth point, but I want to go back and hit a few more things on the seventh point before we press on. We're to be building up one another. Uh, Romans 14:19 says, "Therefore, let us pursue," and there we have a uh, <clears throat> present active subjunctive, which means that we are. T- this is a command. It is a uh, first-person plural command. It's a, used in the subjunctive mood, and it has the idea, the force of a of a mandate. This is something we should um, we should do. Therefore, we should pursue the things that make for peace, and the things which may which and the things by which one might edify another, or literally the the things by which we may edify one another. That's our word, alone there. So there's a couple of things we ought to note here in Romans 14. Look at verse uh, 13. Verse 13 is your uh, a, a hinge verse. Some translations will put this as a conclusion to the previous section. Others will put it at the beginning of the, the, the last paragraph, verses 13 through 23. And it's a key verse. Paul says, therefore, let us, once again, it's that first-person plural subjunctive command, let us not judge one another. Now, there's a contrast here in the context between this command, which is a prohibition to not judge one another, uh, in contrast to the command that we do have in verse 19, therefore let us pursue the things which make for peace and things by which one may edify one another. So on the one hand, we're not to judge one another. And then on the other hand, we are to edify one another. And so we come to understand the meaning of those two words because they're used to in a in a contrastive context. Now, Romans 14.13 uses the same word for judge as we have for resolve. The New King James translates it. The New American Standard, I think, has a little better translation, but rather we should decide this. Uh, I think decide has a better sense there. But both of those words, judge and resolve or decide, translate the same Greek verb, krino. This is the word that we find in passages such as uh, uh, John 3.18, he who believes on him is not condemned, krino, uh, but he who believes on him is, is condemned already, krino. I think it's katakrino there. It's an intensified form of it, but it's the same idea. And so this word krino has a lot of different ma- meanings, just a wide range of meanings, 
And it's the same in Greek as it is in English. And every now and then you'll come across uh, Christians in, in some context and they'll say, oh, well, you're just being... You're just judging somebody else. Well, what do you mean by judging somebody else? Uh, what does it really mean? It's the same word that's used in the passages, just like this one, in prohibition of judging. What does it mean to judge someone? And the Greek word has this, as I said, a wide range of meanings. The root idea is to separate, to separate. And this is related to the uh, Hebrew concept uh, a word that we have in the Old Testament that is often translated discernment is the word being, B-I-N. Uh, and that has the idea of being something between things. So you're making distinctions or separations between things. And to do that, you have to evaluate things, and then you have to set up categories, and you distinguish between this thing and that thing. And that is the root idea in making a judgment is evaluating uh, the various characteristics of someone and making distinctions or separations. And so judging, or the word crino, has that root idea of making uh, distinctions or separations between things. And so it comes to mean to judge. Uh, it comes to mean to discern, which means simply to evaluate uh, circumstances were to evaluate leaders in a local church. Someone, according to First Timothy 3, someone wants to be a leader in a local church, then this is a good thing. But then uh, Paul says there are certain qualifications for deacons or qualifications for pastors. And so it's important for a congregation to be able to look at an individual and question them and observe their life and to make decisions based on that evaluation. Is this person uh, ready to be a pastor? Is this person ready to be a deacon? Is this person qualified to teach uh, in Sunday school? That's the same idea. You're judging them. And see, some people say, oh, no, we, we can't judge anybody. Well, you, you don't understand the concept. We are to evaluate. We're to form opinions. That's another way in which the word is used. If you have any opinion about anything, you're forming a judgment about that. You uh, make a decision as to who to vote for when you go to the polls. You're making an evaluation. You're forming an opinion, and you are making a judgment. You're deciding on one person instead of another person. Uh, the crino also has the idea of considering something or thinking it through. So it's a, it's a thought word that in, involves uh, or assumes a certain set of standards according to which these evaluations or patterns are, are, uh, are, are applied to a, a set of circumstances. Uh, decision. And then there's a negative connotation, which is the idea of condemning someone, putting yourself in a position where, you, where you're in the position of God, and so you're going to look at uh, <clears throat> actions in their life and say, that person is sinful, that's wrong, and you're, you're, putting, you're putting them down. You're acting toward them as if you are God. That is the negative sense, and that's what the prohibition is about, which relates to the idea of... of um, uh, condemning others, 
uh, not <clears throat> there's a sense in which you positively condemn people. You're sitting on a jury. You have to make an evaluation, and then you have to condemn them judicially. But this is condemning them in the sense of slander. This is condemning someone in the sense of uh, anger or bitterness, and it's contrasted with edification in verse 19. So we can't take the command of verse 13 out of context, and we can't take the command of verse 19 out of context. So we, we, we see here it's a great teaching tool where Paul is explaining these actions by means of comparison and contrast. And that's how we learn things. We don't just learn things by rote, although that's one way to begin uh, learning many things, but eventually we have to start thinking on our own. And so we have to be able to discern not only the differences between uh, statements that are clearly opposites, 180 degrees opposite, but we have to begin to discern and understand the various shades that come between those two polar opposites. And that's how a person learns to think. That's what you have to do in, as a prep school teacher in teaching Sunday school. That's what pastors uh, should be doing is teaching in, in by means of these kinds of contrasts, showing shades of differences. Uh, it's not a matter of putting down what other people believe. It's showing why, uh, if, for example, if I'm teaching on uh, sanctification, and we believe that the core of sanctification is walking by the Spirit, and this is related to the uh, filling of the Spirit. Filling of the Spirit is a passive concept. You're to be filled by means of the Spirit. Walking by the Spirit is the active side that engages your volition. Um, when you're walking by the Spirit, you are being filled by the Spirit. See, that is helping you to think in terms of uh, precision by comparing, contrasting some of the ideas and also showing that there are people who believe that the filling of the Spirit, for example, is just a, um, a term for maturity. And so the command to be filled with the Spirit is simply a command, in their view, to be grown up. But the problem with that is that the context around Ephesians 5.18, for example, talks about the fruit of uh, the Spirit, majority text in Ephesians uh, 5, 7, and also are the fruit of the light, uh, according to the uh, alternate reading there. Uh, but the fruit there is parallel to the fruit that you find from the Spirit in, if you, in uh, Galatians 5, uh, 20 to 22. And so you look at these and you say, okay, if somebody claims this position, then you have to look at these other passages in Scripture, and that sh- helps you, and that shows you why there's a problem with the way they're expressing that. And so you look over here and see, the way I've expressed this in terms of the filling by means of the Spirit solves those problems. You can look at things in, in terms of prophecy the same way. And it helps people think by teaching, you know, other ways in which you might hear somebody uh, teach something, and it helps you as a listener to think more precisely, more clearly, more correctly. When you're teaching in other areas of Scripture, you talk about, for example, the Trinity. You should answer, be able to answer questions like, why do I believe in the Trinity. You should be able to answer basic questions. Why do I believe Jesus is eternally God? 
if, if a Jehovah's Witness were to knock on your door and they were to show you John 1, 1 in their uh, New World Translation, which says that uh, in the beginning was the Word and the Word was with God and the Word was a God, could you defend the deity of Christ and show why that's a wrong translation? You don't have to necessarily know Greek. Trust me, the person at the door doesn't know Greek any better than you do. But you have to understand some, some principles. Are you trained enough to be able, able to do that? Or if you're just talking with a coworker, uh, can you do that? If you're sitting in a classroom and you hear a professor say, you know, Jesus never claimed to be God. Uh, Jesus, uh, Jesus was just a man. Could you, could you, Answer that. Could you raise your hand and say, you know, that's not true. There are passages in Scripture where Jesus clearly uh, said he was God. Oh, well, you know, and then he might come back with a statement like, well, but that that's not really in the Bible. Can you engage that? Do you know how to answer those questions? Peter says we're to give an answer for the hope that is in us. One of the reasons I'm mentioning that is because this is how, uh, even if you're in a classroom and you don't, overtly engage a professor, and most times you shouldn't because uh, just the nature of, of the authority in the classroom, but can you in your own mind, in your own head, provide answers, or are you just blindly sort of say, well, you know, that's what I've always heard is that Jesus is God, and so they, they must be wrong. You don't know why. You know, you just decided that you're going to choose to be intellectually unengaged, and you're just going to blindly accept whatever it is that your pastor or your church teaches. We have to be able to think, the Scripture says. We have to have discernment, and discernment comes from understanding uh, why we believe what we believe and why the Scripture says things the way it says things. And one of the reasons that I'm saying that, emphasizing this, there's a new book that's out. Excuse me a minute. This pad under here gets out of my way. Um, a new book out by Ken Ham called Already Gone. And uh, <clears throat> Ike and Mark and I are reading through this right now. Uh, Mark has done, uh, he's had an opportunity to read more of it than Ike and I have. But this was a study that was commissioned by uh, Answers for Genesis. One of the men on their board is in that business. They're in the, um, uh, he's, uh, he's in the business of doing surveys and of market analysis, marketing, all of those kinds of things. And so they worked for a, wh- uh, a while and worked with some other uh, polling groups uh, in developing a pretty solid instrument they could use to evaluate to why young people are no longer going to church. And we've seen numerous studies over the last 10 to 15 years from George, George Barna and his uh, polling group out of uh, Virginia and various others have seen that uh, anywhere from 80 to 80, I've seen as high as 87% of young, of teenagers who have grown up in church by the time they're at the end of their first semester or first year of college are no, no longer believe what they claim to have believed that they were taught by their by their parents and throughout their uh their 20s they are not going to church they're not engaged at all in any in um, in anything christian 
and that they have basically given up on Christianity. And so 80% of the those who are between 20 and 30 that grew up in Christian homes, grew up going to church, grew up going to Sunday school, grew up, many of them active in their in their um, youth groups, things of that nature, uh, have no involvement whatsoever six months after they leave home and go, go to college. Now, what causes that? That's an interesting question. Part of it is, is because, of course, many of the, the young people that are interviewed from this come out of all kinds of different churches, Baptist churches, Episcopal churches, Presbyterian churches, Lutheran churches, and frankly, they're not ever, they're not taught anything in those pulpits, and they're not really taught anything in the Sunday school classrooms. A lot of the, a lot of the reason for this comes from the way in which the Bible has been taught them is just sort of disconnected, uh, events. You have the story about Jonah, and the whale, but they don't really know why that occurred in Israel's history, what it has to do with the gospel, what the uh, symbolism of the three days and three nights are, and how that is significant. They might at a, at a superficial level, but they can't really connect it to anything that goes back to the Abrahamic covenant or goes forward to, uh, go forward to the cross. So they're, they're taught as uh, Charlie uses the illustration, uh, like a pearl necklace just a whole lot of pearls with no string that connects them. And so the Bible is never perceived as a unified book of truth. They don't know anything about uh, Genesis 1 through 3. They don't know. If you were to ask them, when did God create the heavens, heavens and the earth, or when did the events of Genesis 1 take place, they have no idea. Was the, uh, was the flood of Noah a worldwide flood or a local flood? They have no idea. How do you know the Bible is the word of God? Can you give me three reasons why you know Jesus rose from the dead? They have no idea. They're never taught this anywhere in anything that they've, um, that they've learned in, in school, so, or, or in Sunday school or in church. And so they're not, they're not sure the Bible's true because nobody's ever tried to answer those questions and they can't interconnect uh, the doctrines that are within the Bible to historical events. Now, this was what was so brilliant about Charlie's ministry in developing the framework concept back in the early 70s was because when he went up to Texas Tech in 1967, he realized very soon that he had all these ki- college kids in his church who were getting blasted in the classroom with professors who were specifically targeting Christian and Christian ideas, and these kids couldn't couldn't figure out what any of the answers were, and they'd never heard this before, and they were so ignorant about their own Bible that they couldn't intellectually defend it even just, just for their own sake. And so he developed that whole fra- framework concept. Well, that preceded all of these other ministries that have come up since then on worldview ministries and and uh, everything else. And so the solution that that Kim, Ken Hammond, these guys have in the book Already Gone, is really the solution that we have been, uh, that we've instigated as the core foundation philosophy for, the, for, for our prep school and the kind of teaching we want to have that answers questions and prepares young people to be able to uh, go out and survive in the cosmic system without being uh, shipwrecked in their faith because the church failed to give them the kind of teaching that they were supposed to have. And part of that goes back to just learning how to think 
critically. And in every other, if you think about this, in every endeavor you're in, I don't know what kind of work you're in. I know what some of you do. Uh, others of you, um, I'm not sure what you do, but if you're, if you're a teacher, if you are a builder, if you're involved in business of any kind, you have to make evaluations and discernments. You read all kinds of different things. You, you, if you're in, in any, some kind of insurance business, you're going to look at different approaches to it, the insurance industry. You have to learn how to evaluate and think critically about different proposals and different ways of doing things. If you're a teacher and you go to different workshops, these workshops are the outgrowth of different philosophies of man, how man learns, what his basic hindrances are. What, what's the basic hindrance to education? Is it sin or is it society? So you have to learn how to think critically. And if you don't learn how to think critically in, in, in any area, especially in Christianity, you can't function in life. And that's part of the reason that this nation is in the problem it's in is because people don't know how to think, think critically. And that's part of the idea here behind this word for crino. It's not just negative judgment, but it also has the idea of something positive. And it's used both ways in 14. 13, therefore, let us not judge or run people down verbally. Let us not judge one another anymore. Uh, and in the context, it's running down. Some person says, you know, I just don't think it's right for a Christian to do X, whatever X may be. Maybe it's dancing. Maybe it's eating meat on Fridays. Maybe it's drinking alcoholic beverages, whatever it may be. Some people say, well, you know, I just don't think it's right. Well, fine, that's your decision. Somebody else may say, well, I think it's fine. But what, no matter where you come down on these gray areas, you should not be running down other people who may decide that in terms of their own personal uh, spiritual life, they should or should not engage in certain activities. So Paul says, therefore, don't condemn or run one another down anymore, but rather resolve this or rather make this decision not to put a cause of, of stumbling or falling in another believer's way. And then in contrast, we have 1419 where he says, Therefore, let us pursue, once again, this is a positive word for focusing on an objective, let us therefore pursue the things which make for peace and the things which one may edify another. In other words, don't major on irrelevant secondary issues that are not specifically addressed uh, addressed in Scripture. Let us uh, pursue the things which make for peace instead of getting all involved in arguments and divisiveness over non-essential things. Now, non-essential things are not what's specifically stated in Scripture. Uh, we are to make issues over those things. Too often people take passages like this out of context and say, well, you know, some people believe the Bible's inerrant, other people don't. Well, let's have peace and let's just all get along together. No, that's not what Paul would say. Uh, you don't ha- have peace at the expense of clearly revealed truth. So, but in other areas, uh, <clears throat> therefore let us pursue the things which make for peace and things which, by which one may edify one another. Now, this word to edify is a noun here, so it should be translated a little differently. Things uh, that uh, <clears throat> by which are things by which we build up one another. It's the Greek 
noun oikodome, which means relates to the process of building something. It can refer to the construction of some sort of edifice, uh, a dwelling, a fortification, office building, grocery store, whatever. That's what it refers to is just the construction of something. And in this case, it's used in an idiomatic way to refer to the building up of a person's spiritual life, the strengthening of their relationship with God and their spiritual life. So that's really the, uh, the, the value that we use when we decide what are we arguing about, what are we going to do in life, what are we going to practice. Is, is this something that promotes uh, spiritual growth spiritual strength in other people or not. And each person has to make those decisions between them and the Lord and their own understanding uh, of the word. Foundationally, that strength comes from doctrine, but it also comes, according to the context of this passage, it also comes within the framework of examples. So I have in this slide added a correction on that uh, at the bottom there of how this should be translated. Let us pursue the things that make for peace and the things by which we may build up or spiritually strengthen one another. So we are, just in terms of our personal relationships with other believers, we should be thinking in terms of what I'm saying, what I'm doing. Is this something that is going to have a, uh, a positive strengthening effect in someone else's spiritual life or not? Now, I'm going to apply this to what I've taught in the past on the uh, the soul fortification. And so we're just going to, every, all of you are pretty familiar with this, so I'm just going to uh, hit this in a quick survey type of fashion. How is the soul strengthened? That's a question we should say. If I'm up here and I'm talking about a principle of application, I say, now what you need to do is when you're thinking about situation with other people, and you're asking in the back of your mind, well, my conversation, my lifestyle, whatever it is I'm doing, I need to focus on that which is going to produce a strengthened soul. What is, what does, where does that come from? That comes from what uh, I've described as the soul fortress, because there's a construction of something. You're building something, line upon line, precept upon precept, describes the doctrinal process. We learn a little bit about this, a little about that. We apply it as we go along. And so there is a nail-by-nail, board-by-board, brick-by-brick analogy to the Christian life. It doesn't just happen. You don't just grow by showing up at church once a week or twice a week You grow in the same way you complete a project by making it an objective and a priority in your life. You're not going to grow spiritually if that's not the objective. And the way in which we grow is through the foundation, which is the filling of the Spirit, which is related to the walking by means of the Spirit. The Holy Spirit is the power base of the spiritual life. And when we confess our sins... Uh, that's the drawbridge that takes us from being out in the world back into the fortress where we live in the strength of, of the Holy Spirit's provision. And so the soul goes into this position, and then through the utilization of various promises that God has given in his word, applying those to specific situations by operating on 
the principles of grace orientation, uh, humility, uh, teachability, relaxed mental attitude. All of those are different aspects of grace orientation as well as its application toward others. Some of the things we've seen in uh, the commands that we've seen to honor one another, that's part of grace uh, orientation. We also have doctrinal orientation. These two work together. We, our thinking is aligned with Scripture, so there's the constant learning of Scripture, learning what the Bible teaches so that we can then apply it. And as we grow, we begin to understand that there is a, a destiny that God has for us, our personal sense of our eternal destiny, that we're living today in light of tomorrow, and the decisions we make today shape who, will be, who we will be in the future. And as we grow through the, all of these basic concepts, then our understanding of God expands and we begin to love God because now we know Him, we understand His plans and His purposes, and so we're able to not only love God, but from that love we're able to love others, our impersonal love uh, for all mankind. And then this leads to uh, orientation towards Christ or occupation with Christ where he becomes the ultimate focal point and the byproduct is that we have real stable happiness in our life. That's what protects the soul. And so when we, or when you're thinking about these questions of how do I conduct my life so that it, it, it pursues peace and edification with others, then this gives you, uh, these nine categories plus the, um, which include the filling of the Spirit, plus confession, of course, which is just a way of uh, put it being in, within a position where we're protected. Uh, confession doesn't make it grow. That's what I like about that, that diagram. Confession is simply the way to get in there. Confession isn't what uh, builds the, the edifice. And so we're building that edifice throughout all of our uh, out of our Christian life. That's how I came to put all these dynamics together, going back to looking at the process of edification in the soul, looking at the process of the various dynamics of the spiritual life, looking at the tools that God gives us to solve problems, and we put all of that together into a much more dynamic sort of model for the spiritual life. So the seventh point is that we are to build up one another. The eighth way in which we have one another used within the body of Christ is also found in Romans, Romans chapter 15, 7, that we are to accept one another. And this word that is used for accept here is uh, proslambano. Uh, the verse says we are to receive one another just as Christ also received us to the glory of God. Uh, the pros is a, an intensifying preposition that's prefixed to the verb lambano, which has the basic idea of taking or receiving or accepting something into someone's society. It's the idea of accept, you know, somebody new, a stranger comes in, we don't really know how they are. Many of us are rather suspicious. I think it's typical in American culture. We're rather jaded. I don't know that person, so I'm not going to talk to them. Uh, but this is the idea that we're to receive one another. There's sort of an openness, an invitation to accept others because they're part of the body of Christ if they're believers just as much as anyone else, and they got there the same way we did. We were dirty, rotten, lousy sinners, obnoxious to God, and so were they. 
and they can change and become wonderful uh, people exhibiting all of the attributes of Christ if they study the Word just as, as we do. And so we are to look at people and accept them in terms of who they are in Christ or who they can be in Christ. Therefore, receive one another just as Christ also received us. So once again, that pattern goes to Christ. And now I know that you think that Christ received you because you're so uh, special and wonderful, and how could he possibly think the, any less of me? But he thought less of all of us because we're all obnoxious. We've all sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. So we're not any better than anybody else, so let's get over that and have a little grace orientation. And this would be an application, again, of that grace orientation, honoring one another. And here it's it's under the idea of receiving one another as part of the family. Now, when we get to the ninth one another, this ninth one another brings into bear a, another idea that is an interesting idea to to think about, and there's some warnings here that I must uh, insert. We are to admonish one another. Now, God assumes that you're going to have a little maturity and good sense whenever he commands certain things, and so you don't run around uh, admonishing and trying to straighten out everybody. Now, that's always a maturity process. I remember uh, when I was uh, young in my 20s and in seminary, you could, and, and as I've gotten uh, older and matured in the ministry, I've seen this with, with uh, especially 20-somethings who go to seminary and they begin to learn uh, at a faster rate than they're growing spiritually. They're just, and that's just the nature of the animal. You're you're advancing at high speed to pick up all this academic knowledge, and you begin to realize that there are certain problems out there and people just aren't addressing them, and you find out that um, uh, you, know, you really have figured it out and you can start straightening everybody out. And I have been at the uh, front end of that from uh, several people over the years and it's always interesting. They're usually in their second year of seminary, maybe their third year, and they think they've got it all figured out. And so they begin uh, just freely casting their pearls before swine, you might say. Actually, it's the other way around. They're the swine, and they're just throwing dirt in front of everybody else, actually. So we have to have good sense. There has to be a context of a relationship with other people to admonish them. We have to understand what that word means in the, uh, in the Greek as well. So Paul says in Romans 15, 14, Now I myself am confident concerning you, my brethren, addressing the congregation, that you also are full of goodness, filled with all knowledge. Notice that comes first before the admonishing one another. Admonishing one another is based on a certain level of maturity and knowledge, not just knowledge of the word, but knowledge of how to deal with people and how to talk to people and how to, and this comes just from growth and life experiences. So we are to admonish one another, and the Greek word here is the word theteo. New theteo, and that N-O-U at the beginning of the verb comes from the noun root, a word you're familiar with, nous, which means to think. It refers to the mind, 
the organ of thought. So nutheteo is a verb that is related to thinking. And it has the idea of warning somebody in some context. It has the idea of advising somebody, of admonishing them. That would be a negative where you're saying, you know, maybe you shouldn't do that. And our just instruction, teaching, can come under the category of nutheteo. Now, this is a word that's used a number of different places, and back in the uh, back in the early 70s, there was a, a professor at Westminster Seminary up in uh, Philadelphia. Westminster was a, was comparable to Dallas Seminary, except uh, Westminster was the Calvinist Reformed version and uh, of conservative Orthodox Presbyterianism, and uh, Dallas Seminary was the dispensational counterpart. And Jay Adams was the man's name, and Jay recognized that the basic, he was asked to teach in the uh, pastoral ministries department and to teach counseling. But he recognized that what was going on in most seminaries was that they were expected to go out and learn all about these psychological theories and various psychological models rather than realizing that the Word of God was sufficient for handling the problems of life. That's what God had promised, that if we apply his word and obey him, then we can face and solve the problems of life that we face, the emotional problems, the highs, the lows, all of these things we can handle by the application of his word. And at times there are people who just have blowouts on the road to spiritual maturity, and they're lying in a ditch somewhere, and we happen to come along, and they look up at us and ask for help. And so we have to somehow know how to change that uh, spiritual flat tire. So there has to be some knowledge there. And I'm using that as an illustration of, of, of counseling, of just one person to another. We all have people in our, uh, in our circle of friends who at times go through problems, issues, challenges, there is things from the um, things that are not quite as uh, significant or determinative, you might say. I've got a parent to deal with. I've got a child situation here. I just, you know, you've had some experience here. What do you think? Those kinds of things. That would come under this principle of advising, admonishing, teaching uh, one another. And so he took this word, and that became the uh, uh, the word that he used for his kind of counseling, which he emphasized, called, and he called it neuthetic Counseling, and for many years, those who were uh, came out of a more doctrinal background uh, spent a lot of time reading J. Adams' material. He produced various counseling manuals, and he produced a book. One of his first books was called "Competent to Counsel," which I read in 1972, and uh, it was very well done. I think I haven't paid attention to what goes on there in a while. I know that at one time Martin Bobgan who spoke here a couple of years ago at the pastor's conference on the importance of a sufficient Bible, sufficiency of Christ in uh, understanding this concept of, of counseling or advice giving to other believers, uh, that that Bobgan was close to Adams at the time. He said that, that things in that movement have changed. I think 
Adams may have gone to be with the Lord recently. But that, that was his idea, was that this is part of the ministry of the body of believers. And he did hit on a truth there. Then he began to institutionalize it. I think that's where the problem came, is that we are all supposed to be prepared by the doctrine in our soul to be able to advise and counsel, uh, and I use that not in a bad sense, not in the sense of going through a 15, 20-hour sessions with a psychotherapist, but just advising people, uh, helping people to face the issues of life. And you have many examples of this. For example, Scripture says in Titus uh, 3 that older women are to teach younger women to do what? doesn't say older women or to teach the younger women in the ladies' Monday morning Bible study. doesn't say that. It says older women are to teach the younger women how to love their husbands. And when they've been married three or four years and their husband is now embarked on a new career and he leaves at 5.30 in the morning, gets home at 8.30 at night, and the wife is saying, well, you don't pay any attention to me anymore. I'm not important to you. How do you handle that? Or what do you do when you're... Uh, husband all of a sudden can't get a job and he's been home unemployed for a year and a half and he hadn't shaved in six weeks and, um, you know, he's just turning into a couch potato. How do you handle that? Uh, how do you handle situations with your children? You know you need to discipline them, but you feel uncomfortable as a mother. Uh, you've never done that before, and it hurt. You, you, you get your emotions all caught up in spanking that uh, sweet little sin nature that you produced. And so you have to go to an older, experienced uh, woman who has had success being a mother and can give you advice and counsel on how to work through these life issues. And that's what we see in Scripture. And we've experienced that in one degree or another within uh, within our lives. There are mature believers we can go to and and be advised how to handle these kinds of situations. But it's preceded by knowledge. So older women are to teach younger women how to uh, to love their husbands, how to love their children, how to be good workers at home. Uh, not all women uh, are naturally uh, domestic. Not all women are naturally clean and orderly around the house or good homemakers. And they may not have c- come up in an environment like that. And so they need to learn from others, how do I take care of, this, of these kinds of things around the house? How do I be a good wife? Uh, men have to learn how to be a good husband. There need to be older men who do the same thing for younger men. It's just part of that, those, those friendships and relationships that are built within the body of Christ. And so this word nutheteo is often used in, in that kind of a context. So we uh, admonish one another. This isn't a formal thing. It's not something you run around looking for opportunities to uh, admonish one another, just something that comes over the course of time and the course of growth. The tenth one another is given in 1 Corinthians chapter 12, uh, verse 25. So let's turn... Uh, Turning your Bibles to 1 Corinthians chapter 12. 1 Corinthians chapter 12. See, what we're doing as we go through this one another passage, it's one of the greatest studies we can do in understanding the dynamics of a local church and the body of Christ, uh, the whole doctrine of ecclesiology. And so, there, unfortunately, there's many times when churches just don't spend enough time thinking about what the Bible says about uh, the role of the local church. 
Now, in 1 Corinthians chapter 12, the context talks about, first of all, the body of Christ, which is the uh, <clears throat> organism that is made up of all the members, every believer in the church age. So this involves, of course, uh, believers from the time of the, of the apostles all the way up to the present. Those who haven't been born yet, or those who haven't been saved yet, aren't part of the body of Christ yet. But we're a part of the body of Christ just as very much, and just and it's just as real for John Nelson Darby, even though he's with the Lord, as it is for Lewis Berry Chafer, who's with the Lord, and us, and we're not. We're all part of the body of Christ. There's a, a, a unity there. So, But at Certain times, some elements are gone. Now, at any given time in terms of a specific slice of time, there also has to be a spread of these spiritual gifts. God just didn't dump all of the gifts of pastor-teacher in the second, first century or second century or third century. We don't sit around and say, well, you know, uh, Darby and Schofield and Chafer had such great gifts and such great abilities that now that they've gone to be with the Lord, let's just sit here and continue to read their works and in some cases listen to tape recordings and not go forward. In every generation you have other men that are given gifts of pastor-teacher, others who are given gifts of helps, administration, uh, mercy, all of these other spiritual gifts. And so in any sizable group of believers, and I would say 50, 60 believers, you're going to have some sort of spread of spiritual gifts. God is still sovereign over the body of Christ and distributing these gifts so that there is a way in which uh, different believers with different gifts can minister to, uh, to one another. And so in 1 Corinthians chapter 12, Paul talks about both the unity of the body, that uh, verse 12, for as the body is one and has many members, but all the members, that's the all the individuals, uh, all the members of that one body being many are one body. That's that interdependency and the unity. So there's the diversity, there's the unity, there's the many, there's the one. And verse 13 says it's by this one spirit that we were all baptized into one body. And we've all made to drink, or that is partake of one spirit. For in fact, that body is not one member, but many. So he goes back and forth showing the uh, connection between the individual and the unity. And then he goes in to talk about the different gifts that make up, that distinguish the different members of the body of Christ. Now skip down with me to verse 23. Verse 23, he says, And those members of the body which we think to be less honorable, on these we bestow great honor, and our, um, and our unpresentable parts have greater modesty. But our presentable parts have no need, but God composed body, having given greater honor to that part which lacks it, that there should be no schism in the body. See, God has given honor. He's designated each part, and each part has a function. That's the thrust of the context. Uh, verse 25, that there should be no schism or division within the body, but that the members should have the same care for one another. So just because one person has that out front gift of pastor, teacher, or evangelist, doesn't mean he should be honored or cared for any more or any less than everybody else. 
there's a sense in which the pastors, are, those who lead well, are given double honor, but that's a different issue. Here he's just talking about we're to care for one another and be concerned for one another, not overlooking others because they may not be uh, as, uh, as well-liked or as attractive as others. Uh, 1 Corinthians uh, 12.25 uses the word merimna, that's the noun, and here it uses the verb merimnao, uh, which is the form of the noun, for this word. This is the same word that's used over in Philippians chapter 4, be anxious for nothing. Or, or, and, and later in First Peter, casting your cares before, uh, before God. It's that idea of having care or concern for someone. So we're not to be anxious for anything in that negative sense of worry in Philippians 4, but here we see the positive sense of that word, which is to show care and concern and interest in helping uh, one another. So that's that, that's that same word. It has a negative sense and a positive sense. So we are to care for one another. We are to watch or we're to pay attention to those who have needs. And see, that's one thing I've noticed from the very beginning at this church is there seems to be a very nice sensitivity, and I don't use that word in its modern psychobabble sense, but an awareness of what's going on with other people in the congregation. And there are those who have uh, difficulties and challenges at various times, and uh, people pay attention to that. They find out about it, and they do little things that are not observed, not known, and not necessarily orchestrated by the deacons. And that's how it should be. That shows that individuals have have a measure of spiritual maturity and interest and care and concern in the life of people uh, within the congregation. And so this leads to the same uh, similar idea that's expressed a little different way in Galatians 5.13. This is the point, the 11th point. We're to serve one another through love. So serving one another is related to the basic mandate of loving one another. Galatians 5.13, Paul says, For you, brethren, have been called to liberty, only do not use your liberty as an opportunity for the flesh, that is, for the sin nature, but through love, that's the positive command. Notice, first of all, he used a negative and then a positive. He's teaching by contrast. Don't use your liberty as an opportunity to uh, fulfill your own self-absorbed agendas, but through love serve one another. And the uh, Greek word that's used there for serving is the word uh, duluo, and it's used as it's a command here. It's an imperative addressed to the whole congregation, and it has that idea of be a slave to. See, in our democratic society, we often translate these words doulos. It's, it's more acceptable to say servant than slave. But in that context, at that time in history, that was the primary connotation of, du- of a doulos was a slave. And duluo wasn't just serving, it's be enslaved to someone. It has a much stronger sense to it. So we are to, through love, we are to be enslaved to one another, helping uh, one another. With, it gives it a much stronger uh, impetus. So through love, we are to serve uh, one another. And then the aspects of that are played out in the rest of chapter 15. That's why, I mean, chapter 5. Uh, verses uh, 17 and following all deal with the walking by means of the Spirit. This is a, a product of that. 
Now, we looked at caring for one another, and one of the ways we care for one another is to serve one another. But another aspect of serving one another is what we see in Ephesians uh, chapter 4, uh, verse 32, as well as Colossians 3.13, which is to forgive each other. Because we're all going to offend one another to one degree or another uh, in our lives, and we can't go around wearing our feelings on our shirt sleeves. We need to be willing to uh, forgive one another, be kind to one another, and those passages emphasize that the model, again, is in Christ, just the same way God in Christ has forgiven you. Now, we'll stop here at the, with, verse, with the 11th point and come back and talk about forgiveness again in Ephesians 4 and Colossians 3 uh, before we press on, and we'll get to that when I get back uh, from vaca- vacation. I will be leaving in the morning, although I think some people thought I was already gone. Uh, uh, I'll be leaving in the morning. We'll be returning on the 17th, being gone for two weeks. Ike will be here. And part of the role of a pastor in any congregation is to uh, support, train, prepare, mentor uh, young men, new pastors for the future. And one of the ways in which you do that is by showing up uh, when they teach, encouraging them, listening to them, giving that opportunity to learn how to uh, exercise their spiritual gifts. Spiritual gifts just don't happen. It doesn't mean that the day you get the spiritual life, the spiritual gift of pastor teacher when you're saved that you walk out and suddenly you can read the Bible and teach the Bible. You have to go through that process of training. The only way you can learn to explain things is to stand in a pulpit and to do it. And so I have you, that's always been an emphasis in in my ministry through the years is giving opportunities to uh, seminary students, young guys, to exercise their gift, to learn how to use it. There, you go through seminary, and you have to take a series of classes on uh, homiletics, which is for those who come out of a doctrinal teaching-type church like ours, it's just a waste of time. There's a few things you will learn in terms of basic principles of any kind of speech or public speaking that are valuable but there's nobody out there trying to teach anybody how to really teach the word the way we believe it ought to be taught. And if pastors with some experience with this uh, don't learn how to do it and pass it on to those who are new, they're not going to just figure it out. That's what many of us had to do. And I remember when I was first getting out of seminary, I would take a pa- the passages that I was teaching and I would listen to Pastor Seam teach that, and I would listen to Charlie Clough teach it. I listened to George Meisinger teach. I listened to about five or six different guys, and not to hear what they said about the passage, but how now after you do the exegesis, how do you go from that to teaching the principles? How do you go from that to teaching people how to think critically in light of what they learned from those those passages. And for years, that's what I did, trying to figure these principles out from these examples. And and trust me, there's nobody out there, and every and and I meet weekly. Met this morning with uh, several pastors, and I've done this for years, and they're screaming for this because nobody ever was able to take them through and teach them a methodology because somewhere somewhere along the line people got a mystical idea about the gift of pastor-teacher, and they thought, well, they've got the gift. You know, somehow they just sit in their study, open their Bible, and it's there. 
And that's a crock. That is just the biggest bunch of garbage and idiocy I've ever run across in my life. And yet I run across people who think that all the time. So it's part of our responsibility as a local church is to support, train, prepare uh, future pastors like David Dunn. David is still on that process of growth. The first 10 years a man's in the pastor, he should never be taped. That's not a law. That's just my opinion. Because when he's in there, when he's between his 20th year and his 30th year, he doesn't want any of those tapes from the first 10 years to be heard by anybody. I've destroyed all of mine, I think. You just don't want it because you're learning. You're, you're trying to figure out how to make it without training wheels. And you're, 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 it's an on-the-job training thing. So, you know, David will be here on the two Tuesday nights that I'm gone. Um, and then Ike will be here on Thursday nights and uh, sun, Sunday mornings. So... Let's bow our heads and close in prayer. Father, thank you for this opportunity to study your word this evening, to be challenged, encouraged by our responsibilities to believers, towards other, uh, other believers, towards uh, fulfilling these one another commands, that we might have a strong, solid, healthy body of believers uh, in this congregation. Father, challenge us with these things. We pray in Christ's name. Amen.